music, and in particular singing, they have a powerful culture-shaping influence. Songs come to define eras and movements. Perhaps you've, I'm beginning to feel a little older as uh, the classic music comes on the radio and it's from the 2000s. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, that brings you, that transports you all the way back to those years, right? You hear that song and you remember where you were. You remember all the emotions and the things associated with it, right? Music is powerful and it draws you in. I watched recently a documentary called The Singing Revolution, and I would highly recommend it. It, it was about how the people of Estonia, a small country in eastern Europe, which was a part of the Soviet Union for many years, how they used their singing festivals to um, maintain their culture during Soviet oppression and eventually overthrow the oppressive Soviet Union. They would gather in this outdoor auditorium and they would uh, wear their traditional Estonian garb and they would sing the, the, the Soviet Officials made them sing the communist songs celebrating Lenin and Marx. And, but at the very end, they would end with their culture songs, their national anthem. And it, it kept alive from, from uh, the occupation of the Soviet Union in World War II, or a- actually at the beginning of World War II in, in 39, all the way until they were liberated in 89 and finally in 91. And... All through that, every year they gathered 30,000 people and they would break out in these songs and they were rewritten to be um, subversive, overthrowing really the Russian or the Soviet Union and their uh, ideals, their ideology. And there was nothing they could do once they began to sing them. They they could not stop them. There were 30,000 people and more. And year after year after year, They kept alive the culture and their people and their history, their heritage, until finally they were freed. It's a a powerful and moving documentary, and it really illustrates the importance of singing. You see, the Psalms, we are beginning a new series this summer, uh, working our way through the Psalms. We'll go uh, sections at a time. Hopefully, we'll get through the first 10 or 12 this summer. The Psalms are the hymn book of the Bible, 150 poems that are composed to be sung in corporate worship of the people of God. They are songs for all occasions. Calvin famously called them an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. In songs of praise and lament and wisdom and thanksgiving and hymns of celebrating the goodness of God's law and songs of confidence in God and royal psalms that extol the king and messianic psalms that point beyond the king to Jesus and historical psalms that recount the redemptive history and then imprecatory psalms that call on God to curse their enemies and bring judgment upon those who oppress them. The Psalter is fundamentally the hymn book of the people of God at worship. And like many books, it has an introduction Psalm 1 and 2 are the introduction and a closing doxology, Psalm 150. And it is composed of five books, each which also close with their own doxology. In chapter 41, verse 13, chapter 72, verse 18 through 20, chapter 89, verse 15, 52, 
and chapter 106, verse 48. And finally, closing the whole Psalter is Psalm 150, which is the whole of the psalm is a doxology. And while they are appropriate as prayers to God, they were ultimately meant to be sung and to be sung in the corporate gathering of the people of God. Their function is to shape the hearts of the people of God through worship. By singing the Psalter, our likes and our dislikes are shaped to conform what God loves and what God hates. They have an ability to mold and shape us through their singing. And this morning, as we look at Psalm 1, Psalm 1 does not have a title or an, what we might call an attribution, which you will see in many of the Psalms. Like if you looked a few pages over in Psalm chapter 3, it says, A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. That is actually a part of the inspired Word of God. That's not added by the ESV. That's included in the Psalm. And so we should always read those when we're reading the Scripture. Now, of course, the ESV has many different uh, titles and subtitles and things that structure the book that are not inspired, but those are a part of uh, the Scriptures. But Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 do not have a title. They do not tell us who wrote them, and that's probably because, uh, as you'll notice in our own hymnals, they're, they're organized around uh, themes, right? Now, the Psalter, much uh, has been studied to try to discern if there's a, a theme in book one or in book two or in book three, but not, no consensus has been arrived at. But we can say that the Psalter was deliberately put together, and the very beginning of it has an introduction that starts with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And what a fitting place to start. For the entire Psalter, because Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm, and and that means that it puts the wisdom literature into singable verse. It takes the ideas from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and it places them in a song that could be sung and that could be remembered. And we have to remember that the people of God did not carry around their Bibles with them. They did not have a Bible app. Right? They, they did not even have access to a whole scroll, which were massive. Right? The, scroll of, the great scroll of Isaiah, which we found in the Dead Sea, is 25 feet long when unfurled all the way. These are massive, massive scrolls. They don't have access to the Word of God like you or I do, and so they need to memorize it. And what better way to memorize it than but to sing it? Many of, our, many of us have taught our the catechism to our children using songs because it's helpful, right? And it only, it only became a problem when I needed to recount it to the ordination board and I had to sing it to them to remember it. Then it became a little bit of a problem. But. So Psalm 1 is, the, is a wisdom psalm and, and it begins the Psalter appropriately in a very intentional way with a wisdom literature, because wisdom literature is the idea that generally these things are true, right? Generally, the righteous are blessed and the wicked are punished. Generally, if you do good, you will be rewarded. If you do not, you will be cursed. Generally, those are true. But then Job, then Ecclesiastes, not always does that happen. There are occasions where the righteous are not blessed because they have done what is righteous and good. 
right? And what, what do we do with those situations? 50% of the Psalter is lament. And a lament is pouring out our complaint before God because of the hardships that we are experiencing and calling on God to act on our behalf, to relieve us from our distress, to deliver us from our enemies and from oppression. But it doesn't begin there. It begins with wisdom literature, with an affirmation of who God is and a reminder of who God calls us to be. And that is very intentional. Psalm 1 provides us with a solid foundation to build on, a sure confession to return to when, in fact, we must lament. We must grieve the difficulties that we face in life when it doesn't always seem that the righteous man is blessed. Psalm 1 does this by providing a contrast of two ways of being in the world. There really are only two options. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And they, they have two distinct forms of instruction with two distinct fruits. And they lead to two very different outcomes. So if you have a Bible or it's also printed in your bulletin, please turn with me to Psalm 1 and let's read together. Let me remind you that these are the very words of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and our Father, we give you thanks for your Son, Jesus who is the embodiment of wisdom, who has called us to follow him. May we find ourselves on the right path, the way of the righteous. Guard us and preserve us and produce in us that fruit which is befitting for those who follow Christ and lead us to that inevitable outcome, to stand in your presence unashamed. We ask as we open this psalm this morning that you would drive it into our hearts that it would shape our loves and our hates that it would conform us to christ for we pray this in his name and amen blessed is the man the psalter begins and who hasn't memorized and heard these lines so often And this begins the contrast between two ways of living. The first is that of the righteous man who is blessed. And blessed might not be the best translation of that Hebrew word. But probably uh, what lies behind that, the root of that, means happiness. Happy is the man. That, That, I think, better captures the essence of the man whom the Lord is pleased with. We have of course, in our culture, made happiness a cult. You, you cannot go without finding a new bestseller or a new book that comes out describing how to get happiness, how to find it, how to keep it, how to preserve it, 
and how it's the most important thing in life, right? We've all seen those books. But this altar is no different, right? It begins offering a better way, the blessed man's way. Jesus begins his sermon on the mountain the very same way. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in nine such statements, Jesus outlines the key to happiness in his kingdom. And the psalmist begins, then he he issues a series of three things that the happy man does not do. They're negative statements, which which comes down to the source of the righteous man's instruction. Where is he receiving his instruction? He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. These are three postures that denote thinking and behaving and belonging to the world's instruction. One commentator, Derek Kidner, on the Psalms, which I I so love, he says, certainly the three complete phrases show three aspects, indeed three degrees of departure from God. By portraying conformity to this world at three different levels, that is accepting its advice, being party to its ways, and adopting the most fatal of its attitude. For the scoffers, if not the most scandalous of sinners, are the farthest from repentance. End quote. But in contrast, the happy man receives his instruction from the Lord, delighting in the law. And again, law may not be the best translation of the Hebrew word Torah. Instead, we should read instruction. Because the Torah, the first five books of Moses contain, if you put them on the whole, very little law and more about the history of how God saved Israel and made them into a nation. And that way it is instruction. It is instructing the people both in their history and then how they should be as God's people. And it gives us the gracious unfolding of God's plan of redemption. And of course we see on display fully throughout the Torah, the instruction, God's character as He leads His people, as He graciously redeems them and saves them from their sin. So it's, it's hard to delight in law if it's divorced from the lawgiver. Meditation on the Lord's instruction entails a meditation on the character and the attributes of the God who embodies what the law contains. Namely, His holiness, His justice, His goodness, His truth, His mercy. And those attributes are are not seen by us if they're divorced from the story of God entering into history and redeeming His people. We learn of God's holiness when we see Him on the mountain shrouded in smoke and terrifying thunder. We see His mercy and His grace in drawing a people out of Egypt and saving them. We see God's character, which is embodied in the law, told in stories. And those stories we are to meditate on. As we sing the psalm, we are drawn to reflect on the source of our instruction. Who are you listening to? This is as old as the garden. When the serpent came and whispered in Eve's ear and he tempted her to doubt the word of God. We have better instruction. Come and walk with us. Come and join our counsel and stand in the way with us. Come and sit with us. 
in the seed of the scoffers. We have instruction and we will tell you how to have the happy life. We will instruct you on how to be blessed. And as James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In other words, if the world is happy with you, then God is not. Or if you, if you have worldly happiness, you can never truly be the happy man, the blessed man. And I want to say something about the term man. We live in a sex-saturated culture that is gender, uh, that is so consumed with seeing gender and sex everywhere and the problems of it. My word corrector always tells me, don't use man, use person or humanity or something like that. But the Hebrew word for man is a covenantal term which is meant to express the idea of representation. God said, let us create man in our image. So God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Man is male and female, created in the image of God. Man is a term of representation. By making this term gender inclusive, we we erase the covenantal nature of the Psalms. And as it sets forth the ideal embodied in a man who models faithful obedience to God through his delight and meditation of the instruction of the Lord. Saying, blessed is the person, ruins this. And it falls, it falls right prey to all the sexual confusion of our day. For every time we read man, we don't need to see sexism. And the exclusion of women caused by toxic patriarchy. But rather, we need to see in man the ordered beauty of God's covenantal purposes. To make man in his image as male and female. And the same, of course, can be said for the term brothers in the New Testament. Look, we're all sons of God. All of you are sons of God. And guess what? You're also the bride of Christ. Equal opportunity offenders, right? Don't be sucked into identity politics and their reconstruction of gender ideology. Let the scriptures inform the way that you think about man and woman. And yes, we can define woman. It's not that hard. How then can we keep from the world's instructions? How do we guard ourselves from the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners, and the seat of scoffers? Well, the the answer is you have to take delight. You take delight in the things that you love. And you love the things that you devote yourself to. Meditating is like a cow chewing the cud. It bites off some grass, it chews it for a moment, gets all the saliva on it, and then it swallows it down, right? And then it brings it back up, it's fermented, it's a, lot of, a lot of stuff has happened to it, and it's good, and then it chews it again, it chews it, it swallows it down, it does it again, oh, back and forth. And in an amazing way, it produces wonderful milk and meat out of grass. And I love that, right? And that is a, a, a clear illustration of meditating. Our meditating on the Word of God is taking it in, 
thinking about it, rehearsing it over in our minds, going throughout our day, and then bringing it back forward to our minds and thinking again about it and trying to apply it to our lives. How does this connect to where I am today, to what I'm dealing with in this project or this work environment or this person? How do I take the Word of God and embody it in my life? That's meditating on the Word of God. And our consumption of the bread of God, His Word, ought to be on the same par with the cow and chewing the cud. We take the Word and we chew on it. And so we read it and we, we let it ferment until it bubbles out into all that we do. It was, it was I think, Spurgeon who said of John Bunyan, if you cut him anywhere, he would bleed Bible. Right? And if you've, read the, if you've read the Pilgrim's Progress, you know it's just saturated with the Word of God. And he's writing that in a prison cell. Right? He just he embodied the Word of God because he meditated on it all the time. And the model for this in the light is, in the, is seen in the life of Joshua, who is commanded in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The key to the blessed man and his way of life is by being instructed by the word of God. By having your source of instruction coming from God himself. By rejecting worldly instruction. By rejecting all the purported happiness schemes that people will tell you and try to convince you you should follow in order to have happiness. But as you, we will find later, those, the fruit of those things don't last. They don't endure. It's not the right kind of fruit. In fact, you can be described as chaff that just blows away. It's good for nothing. This text falls out into three very neatly Uh, stanzas, verse 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. The first deals with instruction. The second deals with the fruit that that kind of life produces. And the, the third is, of course, the outcome. Where does it all lead to? Where is it heading towards? And so as we look at verse 3 to 4, we notice the, the kind of fruit that the righteous way of life produces. The psalmist continues by showing us the fruit of what, what, what is the fruit of our meditating upon the word of God. Well, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He is like a tree and the contrast is now one of fruitfulness. We see this in terms of the product, productivity in each way of life. The righteous is compared to a fruitful tree that's immune from drought, prospering despite adversity. But the wicked are neither fruitful nor do they endure. They're transitory. The first, I want to notice the prosperity of the righteous, both its nature and its purpose before we look at the endurance of the righteous. The righteous yields its fruit in its season. And just as a a fruit tree is designed to bear fruit, so is man designed for good works. The very purpose for which we were created was to bear fruit. And here we are drawn back to creation and and the original mission that God gave to mankind. We, we, We see it clearly when He created man. He said, be fruitful and multiply. 
The most natural fruit we produce is, is children. And they come from us and are designed to spread out and to do the same thing, to multiply themselves. And our world is, is in active rebellion against God and has slaughtered millions and millions of unborn children. It has gone even further by making the barren woman the ideal of beauty and attractiveness. While it is perfectly natural for a young man to find a young woman attractive before she's had children, it becomes perverse when her pre-pregnancy body becomes the ideal that men want even later into their lives. And of course, women strive for that. But if a woman is bearing fruit in her season, then there will be evidence And that evidence should be beautiful to her husband because it is the evidence of God's blessing. She will have stretch marks, and those are beautiful because they represent the fruitfulness of of God giving that family fruit. Notice also that the fruit comes in its season. As the preacher in Ecclesiastes notes, there is a time for everything. You will not always be having children but you will always be bearing fruit. Let me interject a caution here. Well, I do believe that marriage is normative, meaning that everyone should seek to be married. That does not mean that all will. Sometimes in God's providence, He calls some to singleness for the purpose of devoting themselves to the church. They are called to give up something that is lawful for them to have, namely a spouse, in order to wed themselves to Christ. This is a unique and I would say rare calling. And for those God has called to this, He removes the burning desire of our God-given sexual desires so that they, they may continue in that calling. I fear, however, that this is sometimes this unique calling, which is rare for those who have the gift of singleness, gets conflated. And so that we think of all singleness like that. But there are, there are others who are single for a season until God draws them to the right spouse. And here I would caution you from reading sites like the Gospel Coalition, which I believe has done a great disservice to our singles. I believe they will wake up one day and reject that they, they, they did not pursue a spouse because they, don't, they will find themselves without that gift or that calling. Singleness is either a calling that should be embraced and rejoiced in, or it is a burden that must be endured for a time until God should direct you to his spouse. And in both, contentment is to be cultivated, but each has, of course, a different goal. One must maintain that contentment and singleness for a whole lifetime. And one must cultivate contentment while at the same time seeking to be married. And of course, the same can be said of children. Well, I would never marry a couple who told me in counseling that they were choosing never to have children. It sometimes happens in God's providence that some couples cannot conceive. One is a sinful disposition, choosing not to have children because they want to live a certain lifestyle. The other is a part of living in a broken and fallen world where our bodies don't do exactly what they're supposed to do where sometimes it's not possible for us to have children. Some try for many, many painful years to have children, and God does not open the womb. 
And they may have a strong desire to be fruitful, but on their own, unable to carry out that desire. But there are other ways to be fruitful. It's not just in having children that we are fruitful. And we can think especially here of of children who are born to parents who, who sought to abort them. If we are to abolish abortion, we're to get rid of it, then we as Christians must be willing to step up and adopt these children and raise them as our own, as many of you have, and, and bear witness and, and give a great testimony to the gospel. For what is a, what is a more powerful testimony than adoption to, the, to picturing what God has done for us? So fruitfulness is not only producing children. For the the command given to Adam and Eve, which we we call the cultural mandate, was not only to multiply, but also to subdue and rule over the creation. He was not only to multiply, but he was to take dominion over all that God had created. And the godly man produces fruit in its season when he attends to God's instruction by ordering his life and the world around him according to the instruction of God. Of God. There are two things to say here regarding character and vocation. The righteous man bears fruit, he bears the fruit of the Spirit. This is growing in his character. Paul says in Galatians 5 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. These are the kinds of things that the Lord is producing in us. This, we can say, is what the blessed man produces. He is like a tree that yields its fruit in its season. He is growing in love. He is becoming more joyful. He has a settled contentment that is peace. He's patient with others because he knows his own frame. He's kind. He's good. He's faithful. His word is true. He has self-control. He's gentle. These are the fruit that we as the blessed man must continually be growing in. When we sing this psalm, it forces us to examine the character of our life. Are we producing the kinds of fruits that mark us as the righteous man? Developing our character to be more like Christ by bearing the fruit of the Spirit, it only happens when we are walking in the way of righteousness. This we call discipleship. And that's the daily apprenticeship with Jesus. When Jesus calls you to follow him, he wants you to be on the same path as he is. Uh, our brother Ben took a, a, a few of us men on a, on a hike a couple weeks ago. And we came to a particularly difficult section that we had to get over, to get across it. But because he had been on this trail many, many times, he was very familiar with it. And at some points, he was literally telling us where to step. Step here and grab that. Put your foot right here. That's the safe spot. And we were following in his very footsteps because he had been there before. That's exactly what Jesus does for us through his life, through his instruction, but also through others who have traveled further down the road than we have. We have the example of Jesus, we have the apostles, we have pastors, we have older saints who became models for us to follow. The Apostle Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And in our fractured culture, we are segregated. 
We're segregated into our peer groups. We don't, some of us live and work and hang out only with people our same age. With only occasional boss or parent who speaks in and we, we have words we call them. It used to be that the generations all lived together, right? We had grandparents and parents and kids all in one house. And in some ways, that was probably healthy, right? Wisdom was passed down that way. Now, this might actually become true again, as housing costs are, it's really challenging for millennials and, and Gen Z to actually purchase a house, right? They may have to live with you. Embrace that, right? And see it as a blessing, as an opportunity to, to nurture your own family out of the blessings that you have received. The church is really the last place where the generations should all be mixed together. Paul sets this as a model when in Titus 2 he encourages the older women to teach the younger. Which is why we at Hope Church self-consciously try to have all our ministries here at Hope Church to be intergenerational. We, if our men gather, we want our sons to be with us. If our women gather, we want our daughters to be with us. We want them to be learning from those who have gone before. They want, we want them to see this is the pathway. I have already tread it. You can see where I've gone and I can show you the pitfalls and the mistakes, the sins that have beset me. We need each other. We need a multi-generation vision integrating the, the generations together in worship. That's why our, our children are here with us in worship. We want them to be present. We want them to be lifting up their voices to God, even as they're learning to sing the doxology, to recite the creed, to hear the scriptures read, and to sit under the preaching of the word is vital for our children. But notice also that the tree does not bear fruit for itself, but for others. We are to be other-orientated in our fruit-bearing, and so we must be fruitful in our callings. The gift God equips us with are for the purpose of building up the whole body. Not everyone is a hand or an eye. What kind of body would that be? So it also in the broader society, in our mission to subdue and take dominion over the creation, the righteous is fruitful when he uses his gifts to serve others. And this is a call to order the world to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The righteous man is blessed in his vocational endeavor simply because his motivations, that is what propels him forward, along with his goals, are the honor and glory of God. The image of a fruit-bearing tree is married also to the image of a tree that is so that is fruitful even in the presence of hardship. The righteous man's life is fruitful even in drought. He can endure and produce fruit. Unlike other trees, this, one le- this one's leaves do not wither. They don't drop and fall. Since the righteous are sustained by a source that is deep and lasting. It does not matter if the conditions around them are not Everyone else may be suffering from drought, but the righteous is sustained by ever fresh streams of living water so that his leaves don't wither. And the endurance comes from the freshness and never-ending nature of the source, namely God himself. Jesus in John seven thirty seven said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. One idea that was not present in the ancient world that Christianity is responsible for perpetuating is the idea that suffering is worthwhile. The ancient Stoics embraced suffering, and Buddhists as well, but neither articulated suffering as producing something good in us. They both thought suffering was something to be overcome by disciplining our response to them to achieve a kind of nothingness. But Christianity was different. For Christ taught us that only by dying could you truly live. That by laying down our life we would receive it. He taught that the sufferings we endure are actually making us more fruitful, not less. They're not to be seen as setbacks or obstacles, but as opportunities for growth. You can see a clear example of this in your own body. You you go to the gym and you work out and and you're sore because all your muscles are being torn apart. Your your body maybe hasn't lifted that kind of weight, but then your body does an amazing thing. By being torn apart, it becomes stronger and it's able the next time to lift more weight. And so the Christian religion is like that. The The more attempts are made to snuff it out, the stronger it grows. You may not like it, but God's plan for your sanctification is to bring you through suffering so that you become stronger. So that in the midst of that, even in drought, you have a source that will yield fruit in its season and whose leaf will not wither. But the wicked are not so. They don't produce the kinds of fruit the righteous do, and the fruit they do produce is not for others. Or at least it's not primarily for others, and they certainly don't endure. No one singing Psalm 1 wants to be the wicked. No one wants to produce only chaff. And if it were clear that that is what you were producing, you would think you would stop. If you saw clearly that the fruit of your life was chaff, you would think you would examine yourself and stop producing that. But we don't see it. We don't see it. And therein lies the danger. As a culture, we, we get sucked into things that, that we don't realize are shaping our, the, way, the things that we love. They're shaping even the way that we think about what is fruitful and what is not. We have these placed before us all the time. We've, we've watched this as uh, the younger generation has adopted a, a different sexual ethic, right? They're, they're more susceptible to saying homosexuality is okay. And that it's okay for another man to marry another man. The reason is because they have been they have been disciplined by our culture. They have been instructed by them. And the fruit that that is producing is chaff. But they don't see it. And that's, of course, you can trace that back generationally, right? They're maybe more open to accepting different sexual ethics than the previous generation. But the previous generation opened the door for that sin by the secret sensitivity movement, by emptying the gospel of any teeth, by making it cheap grace, making the bar so low that there became virtually no difference between the world and the church. And so it is with every generation. If you receive your instruction from the world and your idea of fruitfulness from the world, then you will have the same outcome 
as the world. And that's where it, that's where it hits us the hardest. Notice in verse 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What is the inevitable outcome of accepting the, wor- the world's instruction is that you cannot endure the gaze of a holy God. You cannot stand in the judgment. You will not be able to endure when God looks upon you and you are not clothed in the righteousness of someone else. Scripture makes it plain that there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10 The Psalms are not a systematic theology. They're not like Romans where Paul outlines in A, B, C, D, this is how the gospel works. The Psalms don't function that way. The Psalms simply outline in poetic song the contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And it's the rest of Scripture that fills in the blank. Am I righteous because I do righteous things? How can I do righteous things when none is righteous? No, not one. The answer is no and no. While you remain dead in your sins, you are incapable of doing anything that pleases God. What enables you then to walk in the way of righteousness and be able to stand in judgment? Only the righteousness of another. Only by being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ can you stand unashamed in the presence of God. The beauty of the gospel is that God did what you could never do. He sent His Son into the world to take care of the problem of sin. The one thing you and I are entirely incapable of doing. Jesus came and was clothed in the sins of His people. He took on Himself all of your guilt, all of your shame, and He endured the awful wrath of God in your place. But having committed no sin Himself, He not only takes your sin, but He gives you His righteousness. And now by faith you have received the righteousness of Christ and the promised Holy Spirit so that not only can you be assured that you will stand in the day of judgment, but also that you will be empowered to walk in the way of the righteous. The psalmist ends with a startling contrast that at first doesn't seem to match up. What does it mean that the Lord knows the way of the righteous? One of my professors said, The Lord knows with affection and approval. Why are you able to endure the judgment of God? Because He loves you. Because He knows you and He loves you and because He approves of you. And in that way, this psalm closing stanza should cause our hearts to burst with joy. For what room is there for sorrow and sadness? What room is there for just being okay when the Lord looks on you with affection and approval? It is actually the end of this psalm that colors and gives meaning to the whole. For the righteous are those whom God knows, those who He affectionately approve of. And only they can avoid worldly instruction only they can bear the fruit of the righteous only they can endure until the end yielding its fruit and its season only they can stand unashamed in the presence of god because he knows them but the way of the wicked ends in death its fruit is so temporary that the wind blows it away because they have turned away from god's instructions because they have hated god 
Jesus warns that on the last day, some will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. What separates the righteous from the wicked? God knows the righteous. And he never knew the wicked. So singing this psalm also provides the congregation with a warning. Don't be unacquainted with Jesus. The happy man makes his way the way of the righteous because he delights in the word of God. He delights in Jesus. And he knows God because he is known by God. So let us press on to know the Lord. Sing this psalm with gusto and let it shape your hope and fears and to keep you from the way of the wicked. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. O God, our Father, we give you thanks because we are known by you that you have set your love on us in Christ Jesus and given us the down payment of your Spirit, enabling us to walk in the way of the righteous. Father, for those who don't know you, draw them to your Son. May they see him May they see the emptiness of the world's instruction, the barrenness of the world's fruitfulness, and the inevitable end of wickedness, which is eternal judgment, away from your presence forever. May they reject that and be drawn to Jesus, who is life. And as we sing the psalm, may it have the effect of drawing our affection up towards him. We pray this in His strong name. Amen.